So today we start a new message series. We are looking at some scripture passages from the book of Genesis, the very first book in the Bible. And um, we're looking at some that maybe get overlooked most of the time. Um, a lot of times when we go to Genesis, we look at the, the scriptures that feel most familiar, uh, maybe most comfortable, uh, maybe most happy, joyful. So we look at the creation story. Um, we look at the story of Abram being called. We look at the story of, of Joseph and his coat of many colors. All, all these stories that may be more familiar to us. So we thought that for a few weeks this summer, we would look at some of what we're calling the lost stories of Genesis, um, the ones that you got to dig into the pages between those other more popular stories to find, and quite honestly, some of the stories that can be more difficult or confusing, um, even troubling or disturbing uh, or surprising. And so we'll spend these next few weeks looking at some of these stories and inviting us to still be able to find good news um, in the pages uh, that we read. So today we're going to look at a story that comes from the segment of Genesis where we learn about Abraham. Um, perhaps you remember that uh, Abram is a man who is called by God to leave his family to leave the only place he's ever known really and to go to where God will show him to go and to trust. And that the promise that comes with that call is that he will become uh, the father of many nations. Now, what we know today is that Abraham is the one who is acknowledged by multiple world religions of our day today um, as as the father of, of faith um, and as an important figure not only in Christianity um, but in other faith traditions as well. And so his story is a big deal. Um, and perhaps you're familiar with some of the stories about Abraham. The story that happens immediately before the one we'll look at today is the story when some men, is the way it often gets translated, there's a lot of speculation about, was it men, was it angels disguised as men, who were these strangers who show up to tell Abraham and Sarah that they are going to have a child? And um, Abraham and Sarah were both older in years, this came as shocking news to them. In fact, it was so shocking that Sarah burst out in laughter at the idea of her having a baby at her age. Um, but these visitors say, oh no, trust us. By this time next year, it's going to happen. And so it's right there at that point um, that we pick up the story for this morning. Now, I say that as background for this reason, because I I think that it may influence the way in which Abraham interacts with God in this story. Because sometimes when we have been the beneficiary of God's grace, when we have experienced God's mercy and goodness in our own lives, then it creates in us a greater capacity to extend that toward others out in the world as well. So with that in mind, listen to this encounter that Genesis has for us today. When the men got up to leave, they set off for Sodom. 
Abraham walked with them to say goodbye. And then God said, shall I keep back from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham is going to become a large and strong nation. All the nations of the world are going to find themselves blessed through him. Yes, I've settled on him as the one to train his children and future family to observe God's way of life, to live kindly and generously and fairly so that God can complete in Abraham what he promised him. God continued, the cries of the victims in Sodom and Gomorrah are deafening. The sin of those cities is immense. I'm going down to see for myself, to see if what they are doing is as bad as it sounds. Then I will know. So the men set out for Sodom, but Abraham stood in God's path, blocking his way. What an idea that Abraham would stand in God's way and block God's path. Abraham confronted him. Are you serious? Are you planning on getting rid of the good people right along with the bad? What if there are 50 decent people left in the city? Will you lump the good with the bad and get rid of the whole lot? Wouldn't you spare the city for the sake of those 50 innocents? I can't believe you'd do that. Kill off the good and the bad alike as if there were no difference between them. Doesn't the judge of all the earth judge with justice? And keep that word in mind. We'll come back to it later today, the word justice. God said, if I find 50 decent people in the city of Sodom, I'll spare the place just for them. Abraham came back. Do I, a mere mortal made from a handful of dirt, dare open my mouth again to my master? What if the 50 fall short by five? Would you destroy the city because of those missing five? And God said, I won't destroy it if there are 45. Abraham spoke up again. What if you only find 40? Neither will I destroy it if for 40. Abraham said, Master, don't be irritated with me. But what if only 30 are found? No, I won't do it if I find 30. He pushed on. I know I'm trying your patience, Master, but how about for 20? I won't destroy it for 20. He wouldn't quit. Don't get angry, Master. This is the last time. What if you only come up with 10? For the sake of only ten, I won't destroy the city. When God finished talking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham went home. This is the word of God for the people of God, and God's people say, thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Come Holy Spirit, and breathe life into the words of this servant that they might carry a word from you into our hearts and lives today. Amen. It's a curious story, isn't it? What to make of this encounter 
that Genesis reports to us between Abraham and God. Perhaps this is an episode from the book of Genesis that has got you saying, I never knew that was in there. (laughs) That may be a recurring theme for you over the next few weeks with some of these other stories. You may find yourself saying again, I never realized that was in there. Which is one of the reasons we wanted to take some time with them this summer. And behind that is one of my hopes for this series is that it might spark an interest for you to do some of your own digging, to dive in and seek for yourself some of these passages that maybe you are less familiar with or not familiar with, and really get to know more of what's actually in the pages of the Bible. And even when it comes upon a story like this that may seem confusing or strange or different, to spend enough time with it to try to wrestle a blessing out of it for your life. So, um, we're going to do that. And Bible study is a great practice for all of us to engage in as individuals. And it's also something that I think is best done when we share it in community. To read on a daily basis on our own, but then to be able to come together periodically with others and talk with each other about what it is that we are reading so that we get the benefit of of hearing from different people who come from different backgrounds and contexts and who may experience it in different ways and offer different perspectives on what they are reading and hearing. One great uh, program for doing that that Trinity has been a part of for a long time is something called Disciple Bible Study. I'm wondering how many folks here have ever done Disciple Bible Study? Raise your hand. Yep, you see some hands going up around the room, right? So that is one way to do this, where you read through almost the entire Bible over the course of about nine months, nine to ten months, and and you read every day, and then on a weekly basis you connect with others to pay attention to what it is that you're reading. And those of you who have done that, who raised your hands, you know that one of the recurring themes of Disciple Bible Study um, is three questions that show up every week that you're invited to ask in response to one of the scriptures that you've read. Those three questions, you could probably recite them with me this morning if you wanted to, if you've done disciple, are, what does this passage have to say about God? What does this passage have to say about human beings? And what does this passage have to say about the relationship between God and human beings? Well, For today's purposes, I want to take that framework of three questions and apply it to this passage as a way of looking at it together this morning, and perhaps modeling for you a way to interact with Scripture on your own. Now, let me remind you that anytime a group of people come to a passage of Scripture, we are coming to it from different perspectives, as I mentioned which means that not everybody is going to read it or hear it quite the same way. So what you hear me share today is coming from one particular angle or set of angles looking at this passage, but it is certainly not the only one. And yet I hope it will be helpful for you both as a way of practicing uh, engaging with Scripture and also helpful for you in hearing 
some good news from this passage for us. So first question, what does this passage tell us about God? Well, let me start to answer that question by first saying what it doesn't tell us about God. This passage does not tell us that God is vengeful or vindictive. Sometimes when I encounter somebody in a conversation about Scripture, I hear something along these lines. You know, I love the God that I uh, meet in the New Testament, but I'm not so fond of the God that I meet in the Old Testament. Anybody ever heard that before or felt that way? Here's the thing. God is one God. We proclaim that in our affirmation of faith this morning. And the God that we meet across the pages of Scripture and throughout history is the God who we encounter through all of these stories. And so what we always want to be doing when we come to Scripture is to be looking for those elements of who God is that are consistent with God's character and that are trustworthy and true. So, you heard in this passage this morning mention of Sodom and Gomorrah, and perhaps you have some things lurking in the back of your mind about what that means. And chapter 19, the very next chapter, has a very disturbing story about Sodom and Gomorrah and what happens there that attributes to God a very vengeful, vindictive, and retributive form of justice on the earth. But Walter Brueggemann, theologian and scholar, uh, who has spent a lot of time with Genesis, is able to help us put that into perspective, remembering that the story that we encounter in chapter 19 is one that had been around for a long, long time, and that it is the story that we encounter in chapter 18 that seems to represent an evolution, if you will, of people coming to understand more about God's real character. And so, Brueggemann says, this story then, by Genesis including it and telling it for us, calls into question, quote, every caricature of God as the scorekeeper and guardian of morality who is ready to pounce and judge and punish. Friends, the God that we encounter in Scripture, the God that we encounter in our own lives, the God that we encounter in the one who made heavens and earth and who created humanity in God's own image, and the one who chose to show up in human form in the person of Jesus Christ, is not a God who is seeking to pounce or judge or punish. The heart of the God that we come to know through Scripture and through our own experiences in life is one who is inclined toward mercy. The Hebrew word that gets translated as mercy is the word chesed, and it shows up over and over and over again in the pages of Scripture, most often in reference to the character of God. Many, many times in the book of Psalms alone. And 
that word chesed, which can be translated as mercy or sometimes as loving kindness, or as we heard it this morning in the psalm that Bill read for us, steadfast love. That's the word in Psalm 89, chesed, steadfast love, mercy. That word is most often found right alongside another word that is used to describe the character of God, the word mishpat, which gets translated as justice. So here's the thing. Wherever God is exhibiting justice, God is also exhibiting mercy. The two things are inextricably bound in the character of God. And so if we are to come across a description of God's justice as being something that is vindictive or retributive, then we have come across a false description of who God is and how God chooses to interact with the world. What does this passage tell us about God? That God's heart is inclined toward mercy. What does it tell us about human beings? Well, one thing it tells us is that there is always hope for us. Precisely because of God's mercy, our lives are never beyond redemption. God is always wanting to woo us back into right relationship with God, always seeking the best for us, always wanting us to have an encounter of salvation, which is to say to always be moving more closely toward living into the image in which God created us, to be the very best version of ourselves as God made us. Now, you don't have to take my word for it. Just dive into the scriptures and you'll see plenty of examples there. Time and time again, stories of people who God uses in surprising ways. There's some suspect characters and some people with questionable and troubling pasts. And yet God chooses to continue to engage with them and ultimately to use them to show mercy so that then they might become a part of God's plan to share that mercy with the world. There is always hope for us. Third question, what does this passage tell us about the relationship between God and human beings? One thing it tells us is that God welcomes our bold petitions. Did you hear Abraham in this story? How how daring of Abraham to block God's way, as it was translated in the version that I read today, and to insist on God responding to Abraham's concerns about what the plan is for God's people. Abraham six times presses further until he finally gets to that number 10 and lets it rest, which, of course, the magic is not in the specific number 10, but you got the idea, right? That no matter how low Abraham made the number, God's answer was still going to be yes, 
because God's heart is inclined toward mercy. This story that we have about Abraham can be paired with a story that we have in the New Testament that Jesus tells about a persistent widow who longs for justice. Remember, in the economy of God, justice is always married to mercy. The widow wants justice and goes to an unjust judge and keeps pestering him day after day after day. And finally, the story tells us, the unjust judge relents and gives in and shows mercy. And Jesus, in interpreting that story for the crowd, says, if an unjust judge is willing to relent when somebody persists in their pleas for justice and mercy, how much more will a God who loves us be willing to do so? God welcomes our bold petitions. So here's a question for you this morning. Where might you feel compelled to be more persistent in your prayers before God on behalf of someone else? Maybe someone you know, maybe someone you don't. Maybe it's a group of people that you are concerned for or about. What would it look like for you to follow the model of Abraham and be more persistent in your pleas on their behalf? Another thing that this story can tell us about the relationship between God and human beings is that God desires us to observe God's way of life. Which is to say, quoting the scripture from today, when God is talking about who Abraham is and who he has called Abraham to be, that to observe God's way of life is to act kindly and generously and fairly. In other words, to practice mishpat and hesed, justice and mercy, to live in a way that reflects the character of God to the world around us and to hold those characteristics together in our lives and in our witness. And if we take our cue from the story today, what we learn is that if there were just 10 like this, or perhaps even less, if there were just 10 people living in such a way, it could be enough to save an entire city. If you were here last week, remember we wrapped up a series on the kingdom parables. And in the final message that Catherine shared, one of the, one of the examples of what the kingdom is like that she shared is yeast. Remember that? And how just a little bit of yeast in a big batch of dough can make a difference? Just a little bit can go a long way. So, perhaps, 
when even just a few of us start saying yes to observing God's way of life, to being kind and generous and fair, perhaps in that activity the kingdom of God is coming closer. And coming closer not just for you or for me, but where all of God's children might experience the goodness of God's justice and mercy. Thanks be to God. Amen.